So the first uh, evening, <clears throat> I looked out there and some people I knew and my heart warmed immediately. Other people I didn't know. <clears throat> and um, But I knew for certain that come the last day, I would look out and have warmth for all of you. And that certainly is true. It's just when you meet and you go through this thing together and you share as profoundly as most of you are capable and able to do, uh, there's just a natural affection, isn't there? There's natural affection. And you don't make problems. You know, No one up here has tried to be mean. And if we have been, I... But believe me, it was never our t- intention. And I hope you felt that that was not. Uh, and then you, you get a sense of um, safety, no matter how outrageous uh, we might take places we may take you. Uh, the person who's speaking knows that it's safe and would never ask you to go there if it were not. And so that sense of warmth is also a sense of fellowship, a sense of sangha. It's a sense of trust. It's just a natural uh, heart-bearing to um, the teaching, to the profoundness of what we're doing. And it just makes for a wonderful sense of connectedness at the end of the retreat, and during as well. Perhaps you uh, felt that as you were communicating to one another in that brief time. And you can see that when you communicate from that warmth of heart, from that sense of interconnection, from that just, uh, the, the image that comes to mind is the Zen picture where they have this huge mountain and in the valley there are these teeny little three men who are sort of talking together and laughing, you know, and like that, and you just get a profound sense of the natural quality of the heart as expressed through human beings in relationship to the totality of it all. And uh, and sometimes communication is just about that warm-hearted connection, just about that sense of sharing. Uh, kind of, it doesn't not aimless, but not intentional. It's not. It's just being together in words, and words are one of the ways. Um, a very natural way of sharing being together. And it's such a beautiful um, contact space because it's not about self-affirmation or self-enhancement. But then you begin to notice how, you know, when there's something said that's a little um, out of sorts with one's own practice or something, then there can be a judgment or an evaluation or is he or she getting something out of it that I didn't or... And then it gets all lopsided, doesn't it? It gets all funny. And, and the whole, uh, once we believe in the messages of that um, comparison, then we're going to have the accompanying emotional charge that follows that message. And then we're going to have the offspring of further thoughts associated with those emotions and beliefs. And then it gets all kind of funny in there. And the heart is lost. The heart is lost. So these movements, these excursions into conversation, as uh, Heather directed you, really have a purpose and an intention that is very much a part and aligned with the retreat. 
So you ask how to carry this out. You saw whether you were able to do it in one hour or an hour. One thing I deeply appreciated about your discipline was when you heard that bell, you were quiet. And that is rare, in my opinion. Oftentimes the talking, just like a comet's tail, just goes forever. But you quieted down immediately, went into the tea, and I thought, wow, this is interesting. This is, that's, that's a real discipline there. So you're to be commended for that. And... Um, Because, see, when we are willing to pause, even in the midst of something, because you can lose yourself and you can get very enamored with what you're saying and lose yourself in that conversation, and then the bell goes off, and then there's this opportunity to pause and actually step out and release the attached need to further oneself, but you're willing to pause. That's the discipline, and I say discipline because it really is. You, the willingness to follow the primary intention instead of the secondary makes all the difference. And bells are a perfect source. I know this is supposed to be a question and answer period, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm warming up. (laughs) So The bells of our life, the sirens, the telephones, you know, the pagers, uh, the alarm clocks of our life are perfect opportunities to realign ourselves in that moment or take, re-verbalize our intention for our life in that brief moment of pause. Instead of moving directly into the symbolism into the meaning of the bell, we pause with it. We allow it to remind us of the pause and to regroup. And in that regrouping, we then reach out of that regrouping and pause. We then reach for the telephone in a completely different way with a completely different orientation to heart because we have allowed ourselves to come back into the primary intention, our primary intention. Anyone? Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the question is about concentration practice and its uh, value 
in terms of jhana practice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, recently, a relatively good friend of mine wrote a book on jhana practice and asked to come speak at Seattle Insight to advocate it, and, and I refused. And I'm not in any way putting down her book, but it just, for most of us, we don't have access to the kinds of prolonged and uh, very reclusive lifestyle that would allow that to be a functioning and purposeful practice in our life. And what we mean by jhana at the level that we're practicing within the turbulence of life does not seem to be the level of jhana that the Buddha is talking about when he says he sits there and a tree falls behind him and he doesn't even notice it. So I'm not sure we're even practicing jhanas, to be honest. I'm not sure what that means in terms of what, what, we're, what we're associating with that. So that's one thing. But more importantly, um, the, uh, I take a, a leaf from my teacher, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's notebook, in which he says, practice natural samadhi. And natural samadhi is the samadhi that's sufficient to stabilize the mind and is strong enough, has the power to lift this piece of paper. But not over-emphasizing samadhi to the point where I have to lift 2,000 pounds above my head. It's such an enamoring practice, and it's such an endless practice in terms of its development, in terms of its strengthening, that it's a little bit like watching people in a weight room, going far beyond what is even... I mean, it's almost grotesque in how the body looks when it's that distorted with muscle. And yet the powers are so enamoring that come there, and the psychic power. And I just don't see that it's necessary. The way my teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, taught, in which I have taken uh, a stand upon myself, is that each one of us in our life have a natural resonance with some interest. We are interested. There are areas of our life in which we are interested. And if we go with those interests we will find that we are naturally uh, quiet, interested, learning, participating in it, steadying ourselves in our attention. When I was with the dying, I was interested in what death was about. And I would say that my samadhi, stability of mind, is what I mean by samadhi, as opposed to just that focused laser beam concentration, which is different than samadhi. Samadhi is stability of mind not that ability to focus on minuscule for long periods of time. That, was, that grew um, equal to uh, the, the retreat time I spent doing the same because I spent long hours of the day really interested in dying, what somebody was going through when they were dying, my relationship to my own death, all of that held a particular... Um, um, focus for me that I now see was all the samadhi I needed 
for the learning necessary. There are multiple ways we can lose our way on this path. And I think one of the surest ways is to over-concentrate. The other thing that happens when you focus forever uh, in concentration is that it gets out of balance with the wisdom element. I was talking to somebody today about that. And I've seen many teachers, uh, teachers who have fallen into that And then what happens is that because the wisdom is out of balance of the concentration, the focus, there's an exaggerated significance given to what the mind focuses upon. And because the wisdom isn't seeing it in a balanced way, the concentration is elevating its significance, you see? And then there is a a rushing towards which can foster further out of balance, right? I'm an urban Buddhist. I say, bring the whole range of life on. I want a full-bodied approach to life. I want it to rub up against everything. And I'm willing to go, because I'm very interested in my primary intention, that's my interest, Everywhere I get rubbed, I turn and focus and stabilize my attention upon. And the stability of attention is such that it also allows the learning to take place, which is the wisdom factor as well. So the samadhi, the stability, and the wisdom are being proportionally developed as opposed to disproportionately developed by shutting myself in a closet and staring at my nose tip for two, two days. And I think also when samadhi, and especially jhanas, which is the new thing, is, is, is presented as such, it makes us feel, those of us who don't have advantage in, in accessing that, um, like we, we're deficient somehow, that we are, um, that accentuates our self-doubt. That, there, that there's something wrong with my practice. and So then we begin to play at our practice because, well, we didn't really get into the jhanas and so it's not where it needs to really be to be critically important. So I'll kind of show up but not show up because, you see? And that is the worst. That's the worst state of affairs because it's the showing up for our practice that is the samadhi that develops the samadhi, that allows the samadhi to rise. It also allows the interest to come in. And yet we talk ourselves out of that because we haven't achieved some state or something that's promised somewhere in some literature or some packaging. So I say, enough of that. I don't care. That's it. Throw it out. I don't care what the Buddha said. (laughs) I mean it. If it doesn't work for me, it's not. That's it. I don't mean that to be saying that I'm, you know, I'm just saying that he, he was once a lay person, once asked him, said, are very many of your lay followers awake? It was a question of self-doubt. 
And he said, not just a few, many, many. Okay, lay followers. We don't have to bury ourselves in a cave. And much of the Buddha's teaching, I believe, if we bring him down to the level of human being rather than some god which we make of him, he was teaching from his what he learned. He was an aesthetic monk, an ascetic monk. And he practiced, jhana practice, for much of that ascetic training. And so when he's in front of 12,000 monks, all of whom have been samadhi, jhana wallas, during their... <laughs> he's not going to say, what you did was trash, throw it away. He's going to build upon that, bring people, say, okay, we've got this, now let's go from there. And so he talks to a whole array of monks who have done nothing but that, and he builds upon where they are to the next step. You see? Well, now we're a generation in which we, for most, are forest dwellers. And we don't have that strength of attention that asceticism developed. So where are we going to start? We're not going to start with that training. We don't have to. And many of us have seen enough of Buddhism to know we don't have to. So let's go forward here without any self-doubt without any sense that I'm not up to this task. Self-doubt is the number one obscuring defense in this culture because we are so, we do not believe in ourselves or in our own potential. And we give ourselves away to authority and we certainly give ourselves back away from our inward conviction that it's possible. So if, if that's, you know, I'm not going to listen to any message like that because I know every one of you have this potential. And I know every one of you, if you would step forward, which the only thing that holds us in place is the assumption that we can't. That is not some cute little thing. That is the absolute truth of your freedom, is that the assumption holds more important than the liberating understanding that you're already here. And so as long as we keep packaging ourselves within that assumption, we run up against I can't until you're willing to release that assumption entirely and don't believe it because it's not true. And then we stand in the field of of wakefulness. When a student of mine in Seattle, they know not to talk about how they can't do things. I don't want to hear it, you know. I come at them. And I don't mean viciously, but I really want them to look at that. We don't have time to do that. We don't have time as a generation to do that anymore. We do have it all. We do have what's necessary. Let us step forward with that. Rise to the occasion of it now. Enough of this. This freedom is not inaccessible. It is immediately accessible. And furthermore, if I'm elected president... (laughs) There is a New Hampshire debate going on tonight.
whole body is like shining. Yes. Fully yes. engaging with light. Yes. Um, Sure. Yes. That was no pun intended. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely. It's about uh, sexual energy and uh, its rightful place. It's a very interesting question and one in which I'm um, very willing to speak about and explore. Let me take you back to my monk's days when you're totally celibate and yet your mind doesn't stop carving interests and seeing pretty things and making a whole fantasy trip, right? And so... But the energy comes through the system, and because it's a natural expression, a procreation. How does this? How does the species continue? It continues through that energy. But it's because it's locked in with some extreme pleasures of the mind that can't be accessed except through that energy. It takes on a weird kind of distortion for people who um, are either uh, uh, resistant to it or perhaps in televangical, televangical, where they are, um, you know, where they see it as being some, some kind of corrupting force or they make something strange or sinister out of it. It's not. It's not at all. Uh, however, to watch how the mind, because of our cultural uh, fear of this topic, can keep ourselves in a distorted relationship to the energy when it does come and all of the ways that our mind plays forth in fantasy when it does come it can get very funny but when I was a monk so the energy would arise and sometimes I would play it out and ultimately because the pleasure is such in the fantasy that it's just fun to play it out in fantasy but there's ultimate I always want to know whether this the promise of fantasy is going to be fulfilled well, it's very obvious that it's not when there's no access to any outlet, right? So it just plays off as being frustration as a monk. And then, so I, I'm not interested in torturing myself, so that when the energy would arise and I saw that, I would just release the fantasy, release where the mind wanted to go, feeling the energy fully, and completely creative. It's a creative energy too. It is procreative, and and uh, it, 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 so and then it would it it really uh, enhanced my aliveness rather than as a shameful reminder of worldly life or whatever some of the ways that we can get distorted around it. It becomes a procreated response, a procreated response, 
And so when you, when you bring the precepts into it, which I think are a beautiful way to step into sexuality, so that I want to do this without harm, okay? So I don't want to harm people with sexual energy. So what does that mean? It means that you take the whole person into consideration rather than just your needs of the moment. And you honor the whole of the person. So there, there, there is a relationship of and for the whole person, not just bodily attention. And then the energy comes as an expression of that totality of affection rather than just in terms of the needs of that moment. So there's a, I see it as being... Um, it's like a, you're on a canvas and you can paint this thing any way you want to. And with a, a responsible person who basically doesn't want to further divide and create further distance with the use of energy, wants to explore it fully, embody it fully, and not let it become a corrupted in the sense that it causes pain with threesomes or anything like that. But it gets really funny and sinister and dark. You know, I know, it's a, uh, you know, all the internet is full of that stuff. It's like the whole mind of humankind is the internet. And you can find anywhere, any expression of the mind on the internet. It's just there. It's all neurologically laid out now, except it's not here anymore. It's on the airwaves of things. And so if you want to look at the range of disturbed, contorted sexual energy, you can easily find it in that human range on the Internet. I, I, you know, it's like, huh? What? And I don't feel, there's no repression. I'm not, repre- it's not, I'm not repressed around. It's just like, I don't want to go, it's not... I have no interest in going there. None. Into child, children, and I just, it just doesn't, it's like, huh? And yet we can get, be so disturbed inwardly, like any energy, can get caught within the neurotic responses or fascinated addictions of the mind and then get caught and curled around in some kind of sinister manner and then come out in terms of that expression, oh, I, w- I would do any, you say, I can't live with this. I've got to therapeutically, whatever way, so that I can clean this up, so that it can be natural, organic. You see? So we're not repressing anything here. Not denying anything. Exploring everything, open to everything. But when you are in front of someone attractive and you can feel the flirtation and you also have a wife at home, you say no. You just say no because you realize you don't want to hurt anybody from it. Not because you're repressing the sexual energy. The sexual energy is there. You feel it. But you say no to it because you don't want to hurt anybody. And that's more powerful even than the energy, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> no, this is follow-up question. This was my other question. I was wondering whether you could elaborate. 
Yes. This is all my life for Jesus. Yes. Because yes. In a sense that yes. The, That's right. The self can get caught right. in thinking I have a choice. Right. Or, right. What am I going to do? Right. And yet, what you're just referring to about the moment. Yes. There is a choice, and and based on our practice and our ability to discern what's going to cause that moment and what's not, based on the mindfulness, there's at that juncture there's an option. Can you describe? Sure. Sure. Yes, yes, the options. Um, for a little period of time, there is an option. You know, there is an option. And, you, ju- and you, you discern, you look. The question is about the apparent paradox of having options and making decisions from clarity and the fact that, uh, you know, in terms of the Dharma in particular, there are no options. I mean, I... You, when you see, when you see, you can't go back and say, I pretend like I don't see now. You, know, you can't, once the eyes are uncovered, once seen, always seen, forever seen. You can't, go, you can't package it back in. All of you have seen sufficiently so you'll never repackage yourself back. Even if you said, that's it, I'm finished, it's over, I'll bury my head in the sand to hell with Dharma. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. In about 20 minutes, you'd go. (laughs) So then you give yourself over to seeing. And that's what I mean by there's no option. Because you realize that it solves everything. So why not just give myself over to it and quit quit the... the reluctance, the reluctance is just trying to dig a hole and put my head back in the sand and say, to hell with that. I'll just keep my eyes up, open. So that's really what I meant when I said that you have no options anymore in, re- in response to your life, that this thing is going to come through you. And so somebody comes in and says, oh, very, you know, I'm not sinning anymore. And I think, okay, yeah. But, you, but I'm very alive in my job. I said, okay, yeah, good. So it's not... You see, that's, it takes different equations. Sometimes sitting, sometimes very good in my job. Sometimes sitting and very good in my job. But it's never going to leave you. You can forget it. So in some, in some ways, the game's over in that sense. Now, throughout the process, the sight, what we see, the discerning capability of mind, the mind that looks at something and sees the wisdom intent, sees the wisdom way, and then sees the mind pulling oneself in another direction. You know, when you get your uh, alignment with how to work with that, and you see the pain in moving, sometimes you move and you fall into pain, and you, the hell with it, I'll just go into pain. Other times, your wisdom is more active, and you can't do that. And it's not really a question of having an option, although it seems to appear to others that you do. How many of you could hurt someone? Not very many. Willfully, intentionally, unintentionally, we all do. But willfully, intending to hurt, it's not really an option for your life very much anymore for most of you. You seem to have the option to do that, like everybody else, but it isn't really there, is it? You see, some things dry up. 
I love that. We're much further along than we think. And sometimes we mull over it, you know. And uh, Oftentimes, uh, we all have made mistakes in our past. We all have areas of our past that we haven't forgiven ourselves for. If we ever go back and just hold that occurrence, you, you'll see, if you're astute enough, that you really didn't have any choices when you made those bad choices that what you were embroiled within, how you were holding life in that moment, the way you were angsting over it, and the degree of, of ignorance that was playing through your mind in that move, necessitated that you would do what the, the thing that you did. And we go back, then years later, which is very interesting, after we have grown considerably, and then judge ourselves now for what we did then, when right now we're very different people. And we could never do what we did then. And we hold ourselves in an unforgiving attitude to something that we have, should have long since forgiven ourselves for because we have passed by the threshold of ever having to do it again. Now, not, willing, not being willing to harm anyone is a huge threshold to have passed through. I don't want to harm And you can look now at some of the ways that you harm people intentionally and know that you will never do that again. So the options get fewer and fewer. The choi- and it becomes clear at some point that you can either go with the mind or go with the heart. And when you go with the heart, it's a completely different dimension than going to go with the mind. The mind holds multiple choices, multiple choices, A through E, the heart doesn't really, it just holds presence. It doesn't hold a lot of should I, should I not, deliberations, and it doesn't really hold a lot of that. So the options get less. But life gets more fun. It's more, spontaneity is not a choice. You say, well, should I be spontaneous or not? And once you're, once you're spontaneous, that's what it is. There's not a choice in spontaneity. It's not a deliberation. The whole problem we're resolving is the deliberating mind, the mind that steps back from itself and considers everything from everything. The mind that says, hmm, what about this situation? Is it safe to really show up for this, or should I pull back? That censor, that commentator, is what, we're, what we become free from. That's what spontaneity is, to be free from the commentator, you see. And then life takes over our options. <laughs> it's beautiful dance. <laughs> That's why Zen masters are so weird. <laughs> but you can also do this thing mindfully, you know, and like sit. And then you're further nuancing your mindfulness in terms of, and always mindful, knowing, sitting, sitting, which is really a further subtlety of deliberation. Which one do you want?
Mindfulness is an interim step towards natural aliveness, spontaneity of being. Doesn't mean we can bypass it. Most of us have to go through that to understand how we're creating through deliberation, the angst of ourselves with ourselves and with other people. But it isn't the final resting place for God's sake. Or we'd all be very careful in everything we did. We've made this practice into something it never was intended. Hmm? Yes. I didn't hear what that what you said. <laughs> this is my night. <laughs> Would you like to respond? What was the question? I don't know. Actually. I don't About sex? <laughs> that got my attention. About sex? Is that what you're asking? Would you like to say something about sex? <laughs> Truly, I really I haven't anything more or different to say than what Rodney said the naturalness, freedom with its spontaneity, care. When the heart's really clear, it's nothing to be afraid of and be distorted around. I just feel the same way, actually. And I think it's not, and in the Dharma world too, not um, treated in a healthy way in that it's not, shared a lot and not spoken about so I'm actually quite happy that you're asking and that we can say this but um, I shouldn't say it's always not but it doesn't come up very much because we're out of a monastic tradition but yeah I think I think the same as Rodney around it not harming and nature and beauty connection all that it's Rodney's night <laughs> Yes, in the back. Yes. I love that word. Yeah, no, I I use words that... I love that word, don't you? I love it. Salvation. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it's at every level, really, when you feel um, a sense of unburdenedness. The question is about salvation and uh, what, how that fits in Buddhism, because they never hear it. I mean, it's... When all of us have had experiences and insight, we see, you go, oh, whoa, you're free. there's a burden le- lifted, a burden lifted, Right? 
That's what I mean by self. Ah, yes. And you feel your heart. What, how do you know a burden's been lifted? Because your heart grows. It goes, whoo. And then there's the um, putting down of all burdens. And when the mind has determined what it really wants, it's not willing to compromise it for the sake of cultural nicety or for the sake of, of a role or image or because of what people think about you within your authentic display. In fact, those things don't weigh in at all anymore. And not because we are heedless of that, but because we see where it is coming from. We see that it's coming from the pain of what the holder, the holder's own pain. And why should we be governed by someone else's pain? Because when one person comes alive, it jolts us all. We go, wait a whoa. This isn't familiar. I don't like this. And many people get very upset with me or anyone when they see some display of where they are, of where someone else is when they're not. And so then they try to reel you in through criticism, all kinds of things. And that's why all of us have experienced that too. When you have moved outside of what your friends or family expect you to do, and then they try to reel you back in through the powers of their psychology. And you're just not willing to do that anymore, not willing to go there anymore. Sometimes you have to be distance ourselves from the family in order to develop enough confidence in that authenticity so that you can go back, we can go back into the family. But that also happens among yogis. Because each of us have a particular way that we think of this practice as unfolding and we're following a kind of blueprint in our mind. Freedom is not blue... Buddhism is not a blueprint to anything. Buddhism is total ambiguity in the sense that it brings you to clarity and then the rest is up to you. Its job is to bring you to clarity and then what happens from clarity is circumstantial. It's never patterned. It's never blueprint. It's not predictable. So to say, you know, why speech means that when I, what am I supposed to do now? Okay, why speech? It's not like that. It's like you open your heart to connection and why speech comes from that. It's not like this thing that you have to constantly remind yourself to do. Okay, well, no, wait a minute. You don't throw myself in confusion. That's trying to be right, but not free. So we cast ourselves, at some point you just cast yourself over over that and and on the way it's like being on the back end of a boat and then falling backward into the water and that's salvation and when that happens everybody it jolts everybody goes huh they have to shuffle themselves because we're all ensconced in our own particular idea of practice and it throws us off and we get jarred and we get 
It's disorienting. And that's the value because the conscious has to, the unconscious has to be made conscious. That's what this whole thing is about, is making the unconscious conscious. It's I was saying this to someone in our hospice days, we used to have a bulletin board that said, Living until you die, Hospice of Seattle. It's about, it's about living until you die, Hospice of Seattle. And then we put it around town and we get phone calls from people. Take that sign down. Every morning when I go to work, I don't want to see the D word as I go. (laughs) So the staff would say, what do you think we should do? I said, leave it up. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. How How are we ever supposed to have a conscious world if we keep subtracting the very message of consciousness because people get upset about it. Getting upset is how the unconscious becomes conscious. It gets upset. (laughs) Right? So you don't worry about people getting upset with you, really. Some of you have with me, expressed it such. It's just part part of what we do up here. Yes, dear. Yes. Yes. Sure. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. You're already well into that question, may I point out, anyway, and I'll explain that in just a minute. The question is about the homework sheet I left out there on the counter for people who'd like to take it, and the question, who am I? First, I think more important than the homework is to realize that as we practice, we all have assumptions about our practice, and we practice from those assumptions. We never test the waters of those assumptions. We practice from them. Many of us have been practicing right along with our sense of self, just assuming that it's true and looking outward from that truth. And everything we do then has that distortion within it because we've never questioned the distortion itself. Spirituality, that'll serve you in life, but it will not serve us in spirituality. Spirituality is looking at the very thing that we rest upon, the very foundation of the credence. We give life, we give the world, we give ourselves. There's no question that will break that foundation quicker than the question of who am I. Not intellectual although it can be intellectual and it stays as a philosophy, but I'm talking about the inquiry, looking at our mind in terms of trying to find the who in it. We have spent a week looking at the whole array of mental states and all of it. Where is there a who? Where did you find someone? And as we get quiet, the person who's watching and looking also becomes part of the display that we're seeing. Now who are you going to call who? You see, it isn't to be found. And so this question, this practice, if done right, is really a practice into the who of what we are. But it's a beautiful way to keep the practice going irrespective of circumstances, conditions, So at work or, you know, 
whenever you find yourself standing upon your righteousness or your role or your image, a little, just a little poke at yourself, like, who am I here? What is this? What am I doing? What's going on here? A, a question of humility. Now, that's one way to do it. I'll give you a second way that I like a lot, and that is, if you look through the sense doors, there is what you see and then what allows you to see. What allows things to be seen is not what is seen. Now, this gets a little bit funny, so just for those of you, don't worry about if you don't understand it. Just let yourself just hear it. What is it that looks through the eyes? Not what is seen through the eyes, but what is it that looks through the eyes? What is it that hears from the ear? Allows hearing to take place, allows sight to occur. Now, when we actually take that on as an exercise, you, we, don't focus on what is heard or what is seen, but the whole field is relaxed because we're not interested in what we're seeing. And it opens up. And you feel presence. And you can go all day just intoning that encouragement. Oh, what's, what is looking through the eyes? And suddenly the figure, figure ground switches because the sense of self feeds off of the experience of what is seen. Presence stands in surround that. But we, as a sense of me, feed off our relationship to only what is seen, what is heard, what is smelled, what is taste, what is thought. And we, we develop our definition through that relationship. So when we ask a question beyond that relationship, we go beyond self. What is looking out, what is looking out of your eyes? What is seen through your eyes? Whoa. <laughs> People who experience, I say, whoa, this is big. It's big. Mm. I feel so small, I don't feel I can hold that bigness. You can hold it. I love that Rumi poem. You know the Rumi poem I read you? Your eyes are so small, they can behold all the world. You think your heart is smaller than your eyes. It can, be, it can hold all things. I had forgotten you had even asked that question, dear. I am so sorry. I got, <laughs> I got into a whole thing. I lost context, and I apologize for that. It's not an intellectual exercise. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. It goes back, that's exactly right. It doesn't go back to, no, long past words here. Is that what you mean? Yeah, because words hold you to the definition the word is. 
You look through words, you see what the word says this is. And so when you look through a word, life only, it contracts around the definition we see through in glasses. Right? When you allow yourself to see what is seeing glasses, you've now circled glasses. You've insert, you, in, you know glasses, but you notice it's much more than glasses. It's also quiet. It's stillness itself. It's stillness itself. Right? So we're not trying to get out of definition. We're seeing around and through definition. We see that definition is one very limited expression of functionality, utility, but does not hold the story. The whole story is in the stillness. And so our minds can be still and, and this is the resolve of all paradox, know exactly what to do functionally. (laughs) It's not outside of your potential, dear. It's not outside of what you can do. It's not outside your expression of your aliveness. We have to orient ourselves in the proper relationship to practice. That's the major problem, and that's going to be systematically what I teach probably for the rest of my life. Because I see us going, distorting, going through practice with carrying a sense of self. And you will fall all along the way when we do that. Yes, you will improve character-wise, but your character would improve anyway. You don't have to focus on character for it to improve. The practice will do that naturally. But when we don't question the assumption of self from day one, not from uh, after three three three-month courses and four years of, no, from day one, the whole thing holds a completely different orientation to purpose, to intention, to effort, to everything. And that's what I call the urban Buddhist. No, you're not doing that. And I say that politely, but you're not seeing life outside of yourself. It's not held in reference to yourself whatsoever. That's what Yanai, how Yanai defined abiding. We abide. We don't watch. You can watch yourself to death. And that's what I mean. When you're watching, you're always outside. You're just a little bit off-center, off-plumb line. And it makes you very, it's a necessary, for most people, a necessary component of the practice. I am not discouraging individuated mindfulness and attention to that. But it is not the end story. And it will not take you to the end as long as the mindfulness is based upon self and, the, and me fabricating mindfulness from the sense of self. It will not end the story. It will not end the problem. 
In fact, it festers the problem. What is left when I'm out of the way? That's what I want to know. If the Buddha says anatta, well, I believed it from the first day. Okay, so then what am I doing? What am I, what am I doing? When everything I do, what am I doing? Because if there's no I, then why do I keep thinking there is one? See, I want to know that. I don't want to play with this thing. I want to go as deep as the teaching will take me. And so I, I have a lot of faith in what he said. This is early on. So I'm just going to, let me just see, all right? So I start thinking about I and assuming the strategies of I. And I say, wait a second, let me question that, not follow those strategies blindly. Let me question the very strategies on which the I is based. The work ethic. And lo and behold, it takes you to a completely different dimension in which self is the given. Excuse me. In which selflessness is the given. (laughs) Just a little change in that (laughs) sorry I just apologize for that last question no no yes yes you Yes. No. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so it, I will, but I can't. I can't recreate. I can't recreate that. But so I'll just talk about being attention starved. Okay. So the question is around being attention starved. We are attention starved. There is a deep. I'm, ex- I'm excited. There's a deep yearning in our heart for attention. It was what we were denied ever since we were little. The pieces of ourselves that we have long since severed off from ourselves is because we have refused to pay attention. We have assumed that they're not worth paying attention to. We have assumed that they're not worth bringing back into the whole, that they should be away from ourselves. So we're attention-starved. We're love-starved. Many of us are so full of our own sense of self-dislike that we can't imagine Even being quiet with ourselves. It's too scary because there's too much at stake in keeping it, keeping myself in denial. So to give yourself what, see, that's a primary intention. You're hungry for something, and yet your a secondary intention is I'm afraid to go there because of what 
it might show me, but you're hungry for it. Follow the hunger, not the fear. The fear almost always denies the hunger. And follow the hunger. This is about following the hunger. And, and, and just be re- absolutely determined in relationship to that fear. Not um, insensitive to it, but determined. And this is not going to do it. I'm not going to be defeated by this. That's what I mean, you see? So then we start looking at our mind and seeing that everything can be held, our emotions can be held, our thoughts can be held. And much of the story we're telling ourselves, we begin to see is just going nowhere, doing nothing, describing nothing. If it were describing something factual, it's not describing anything factual. So a lot of that goes away. Our flights into the past, our flights into the future, our memories, our spending most of our lives before ourselves or after ourselves, all of that goes away. Now the attention is gaining force and momentum. There's still areas of ourself which we are abusive areas. You know, these are there are some really supercharged histories, even in this room, that need care and attention and timing and patience and enormous patience, but not, but listen carefully and determination. Patience, absolute, I'll wait this thing out. I'll be present to it. I'm not going to turn away from it. It's like a child. I will not turn away from this child. As a mother, I'm not going to, I'm not turning away from this child. So at first, things are blurry. Things shoot up in our consciousness. We're not even... We just kind of catch like uh, shooting stars of things. oh 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 and we're flinching and we're all oh it's like and that was like oh how was your retreat oh my god I feel like I was on you know a battleship the whole time. <laughs> Many retreats are like that, and that's wonderful retreat from my point of view because you your dedication is to stay as awake as you can and it wasn't very but it was the intention, not how awake you were, not how awake you were. And I know that the story's o- it's over. You might not know that. But if you have that, the will, I don't care. I'm going to, I'll see this to the end. I'll see it to the end. That resolve, aditan, in, in arcane speech. That's what it really is. It's the heart. It's the heart that says, no, I'm not going to live like It's the heart. The heart is the resolve, not the mind's resolve. The mind's resolve, don't, yeah, that's right. White knuckling ourselves, it has no place in this. But the no of love, I will not do this to myself anymore. See, that has everything to do with that. Stand upon it. And thoroughly set it going, said the Buddha. Make it the way and the means. Thank you.